Now, a couple weeks back, I don't know, maybe a month or so back now, um, had the privilege to go, and I'm looking for it, I had the privilege to go with Miles and Mike to a district conference. And one of the breakout sessions that, uh, that I went to, Mike also attended, about discipling Gen Z. This is the teens, basically. How to understand, engage, and empower today's teens. And, and I'd just like to notice a couple of things. That, uh, they had a wonderful couple of young people who really understood this, their world. And um, they were a delight to listen to. Who is Gen Z? Let me just go through a few things. Gen Z makes up 25% of the population. They are the most atheistic in our culture. 48% of Gen Z is non-white. 57% use screen media four or more hours on average per day, with 26% of them more than eight hours a day. 4% have a biblical worldview. 4%. We have work to do. Their attention span is eight seconds. That's right. Mike remembered. Okay, about that of a guppy. Okay. So how they measure that, I don't know. But it has everything to do with the world and how stuff is constantly put in front of them and keeps them interested to, to draw them in. But that's their world. Uh, or here's more about their world. That's statistics on who they are. The world Gen Z, they're, they're, they're referred to as screenagers or the iGen or the digital natives. They grew up post 9-11 and in a recession. I hadn't thought about that. They're diverse and their parents tend to be hands-off. Their parents have been warned not to be helicopter parents, always hovering over them. And so their parents have been hands-off in their approach to parenting. Here's how they relate to the world of faith. They grew up in a post-Christian culture. 66% of the families of Gen Z uh, say that, uh, that faith is not the core identity in their families. Morality is relative. It changes with society. Uh, parents, number one concern about church youth programs is helping teens determine their career. Youth pastor's biggest struggle, and there's a relation to this, is parents not prioritizing their teen's spiritual growth. Where parents aren't making it clear that the kids growing in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ needs to be significant. Like we just heard Jenea sing about being sold out. Here's how Gen Z clashes with Christianity. Truth, they see truth as relative due to doubt and distrust of authority. They see sex reduced to acceptance of consent as the ultimate ethical standard. They see money as a primary focus of personal happiness. They see technology as a substitute for real relationships. That's how they clash with Christianity. But here's where they resonate. They see diversity as desirable and good. And of course the gospel is for people of every kindred nation and tongue. They keep empathy with uh, the instruction in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have in a gentle and respectful way. So they're open to listening and for somebody to make an argument, but they just don't seem to be open to just fighting and having something pushed on you, if I'm understanding that. They have an openness because they come with less spiritual baggage from bad theology and more willingness to learn. Because remember... 66% of the families don't consider faith as a core to their identity as a family. 
And so they're open to it, and they have a willingness to learn. They also come with an emptiness because of that lack of input, and so they're open to finding God as the only one who can fill the emptiness. These are statistics. These are things. Those who study this stuff, here's what they're telling us about Gen Z, the teenagers, some of them who just graduated. I know Zach, I see Zach and Ellert are here with us today, and uh, just graduated this weekend, okay? And um, this is them, and those younger than them that they're talking about. I thought this was an interesting statement. They're looking for information from the church because they can Google it. Wow. Never would have thought about that. I thought they just waited for me to pass pearls of wisdom to them. No wonder I've been missing the boat. So, that's some information on Gen Z. Now, what wasn't on their printed notes, but what they did say is their perspective on older generations, something like me is we don't know anything because we don't know how to manage our way through handheld devices. So we just clearly are lost. So I thought, well, that's an interesting thought. Um, My first thought on that is, okay, (laughs) why learn it if I can ask a young person to do it? See, see, they, they don't get it. We, they didn't pick up on what we did with them, right? My kids would say from the other room, Dad, how do you spell procrastination? And I'd say, you got a dictionary, look it up. Now, these young people, they say, hey, will you do this for me? Yes. They don't say, hey, learn it. They just do it. And I'm like, great, i got a young kid to do it for me. I don't have to learn it. And they're like, oh, you're really stupid. It's like, no, who just got punked in this? You did my work. <laughs> Think I'm so stupid? But to see if we really know nothing, I thought, let's just put out, let's just, I just did devise this little bit of a quiz to see, um, uh, to, to see if, if that's true, that, that our generation knows nothing. So I'll let you just raise your hand, and uh, you've got to identify whether or not you're from the younger generation, and that is 20 and under, or if you're from the older generation, then we're going to have to go for, let's say, 50 and older. Okay, so those of you from... 20 to 50, you're out of the quiz, okay? That's just how it is. It doesn't count for you, all right? So here we go. Raise your hand and give me the answer, okay? Number one, give the next number in the sequence. 283, 307, 327, 350, blank. Next number in the sequence. 283, 307, 327, 350, 396. Thank you. There came from one of these old guys. Doesn't know anything. All right. At 396. Any, any of you young people have a clue how he came to that? You don't, do you? You have no idea. All right. Well, that's too bad. Okay. All right. Next question. You know what an iPad is, but what is your pad or my pad? Hmm? What? Okay, your house. Okay, well, that's good. He got it. Thanks for giving. No, but he said Mikasa beforehand. I'm sorry. We're coming back over here, all right? He said it first. Mikasa. That's good. That's good that you got there. You're just slow. You're just slow. Okay? You tell, you tell us we don't know anything, but you better be ready to keep up. Okay, here we go. Next one. Now, a little, little history politics. Richard Nixon is our only president to ever resign from office. He was replaced by Gerald Ford. 
But who was Nixon's running mate? Agnew. Okay, extra points if you can give me his first name and middle initial. Spiro T. Agnew. That's right. Okay, Spiro. That's why they wouldn't let him become president. Who wanted a president named Spiro T. Agnew? Get rid of him. Get in Gerald Ford. That sounds right. Ford, okay? Because we know Fords are great. Okay, there we are. All right. So let's see. It's three for the old people, zero for the young people. Okay. This. All right. Many a song has been written about a woman. Who recorded the songs Barbara Ann, Help Me Rhonda, and The Little Old Lady from Pasadena? Yeah, the Beach Boys. Okay, very good. All right. So we're good. You guys, I didn't hear. I see a lot. Okay. All right, last one, last one, and we'll go to our Bible knowledge, okay? Amos 1.1 begins with these words. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa. If the prophet Amos was a sheep breeder, what was Jeremiah? Hmm? Somebody speak up. Je- no, no. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Exactly. Jeremiah was a bullfrog. All right. There we are. So, anyway. Anyway, these young people with. These young people who think they can do a handheld device and that we know nothing, all right? I think they got trumped in this thing. They got killed. Now, friends, there was a point to that. You see, our text for today demonstrates a distinction between generations. And that's why we went through that little exercise. Today... We are returning back to the future. Now, last week, we finished up two weeks of backtracking. Because if you've been with us in all of this, now, just kind of watch my hands. Okay, it goes like this. We came through just a uh, a consistent chronological approach till we got to the end of the kings. And at the end of the kings, what we found was both a northern and southern kingdom in Israel, because it had become divided, were carried off into captivity by the time you get to the end of the kings. And then after that, as you read through your Bible, you come to the Chronicles. Well, what we found out was the Chronicles cover information that was in the kings. And so we looked at for a second time, we got further understanding of the building of the house and the promise to David and Solomon's role in all of that or what God required of him. So that was the backtrack because Chronicles covers much of the same information that is in the Kings. And now we come to Ezra. And Ezra picks up after a 70-year captivity. So now we're back to the future, if you follow me. And we're past the end of Kings, where they were dragged off into captivity. We're going to come pick up at the end of 70 years of captivity. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, this is Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be 
Uh, my, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, do you understand what's being said there, friends? It's very simply. The people who are in captivity in Persia, they've been dragged there first by, by the Babylonians, and now the Persians took over the Babylonians, and now King Cyrus to fulfill a prophecy that God had made through Jeremiah. God is in control in all of this, friends. King Cyrus now makes a proclamation that these people, they need to go back to Jerusalem. Seventy years of captivity is ending. And they're going to go back and they have a specific task to build a house. Now, if you've been with us for the last four sessions, you know we've talked about that house. David wanted to build it, wasn't allowed to build it because he was a man of war. Instead, his son built it. His son was told, if you will listen to me, if you will follow me, if my people are called by my name, right, if you will be in obedience, this house will stand forever. But if not, I'm going to disperse you among the nations. And that's what happened. They'd gotten dispersed some centuries later. And now, God's calling them back, and they're going to rebuild that house, also known as a temple. And that house... That temple is going to have in it the holy place, the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant. It's where God's going to meet with them. You following this? I hope it's making sense. I'm trying to take it, step through it in a way that it makes some, some uh, easy to understand things. They're coming back out of captivity now, 70 years later. The only thing I want to say relative to that one thing is this. We mentioned it last week. I just find it interesting that a pagan king, most powerful man in the Middle East, was prompted by God after 70 years to return God's people to Jerusalem. I find it interesting. We talked about this last week. That the most powerful man in the world called attention back to Jerusalem by moving an embassy there. Seventy years after the people were put back in their land. I just find it interesting. And I want you to think on that. I make no interpretation of it. I find it interesting. And with that, I should say this. As Donald Trump made that decision, has nothing, if I understand what Ezra is saying, has nothing to do with I'm claiming Donald Trump is a believer or anything. I'm saying God moved in a pagan king's heart years ago, centuries before, to return the people. He can move in whatever Trump's heart is to do something again. 70-year time frame. Interesting. That's the beginning to the book of Ezra. They're going to go back. They're going to rebuild the house. And then when we get a list in chapter 2 of all these people who came back, we're going to jump right over that. Come to chapter 3. We're going to highlight some things. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. 
Then Joshua, the son of Jezodek, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offering and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. So you understand what's going on. They've built an altar, which is a place of sacrifice, where they will burn these sacrifices that are made. They reinstituted the sacrifices of, of the Mosaic Covenant. Now they are now up and running. Got that? A lot of stuff that's going on. What's the first thing? They build the altar. I believe it's because they just recognize that they had sinned, that nobody comes to God without the shedding of blood and they recognize their national sin. So we've got to start with this. We've got to make sure we have a place to offer sacrifice if we are ever to be back in God's good graces. And remember also that those animal sacrifices, they were placeholders till Christ came. So we're still looking forward to Christ at this point. But then notice verse 6. We got this altar. This altar is separate from the house and the temple. In fact, it will sit outside and in front of the house and temple. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. That's what they went back to build, was the temple, the house. But the first thing they built was the altar that will stand in front of it so they can get the sacrifices going and get in in line with God's covenant with Moses. Interesting observation. If we drop down to verse 8, we now read this. Now, in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, you got a guy, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now we're finally getting started on the house. Following me? Now we're getting started. Drop down to verse 10. We pick this up. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So now they take this step. They lay the foundation of the house of the Lord, the temple. This is what they came back to do. And do you notice it happened with incredible ceremony? There are just times when it's appropriate to do things with ceremony. The graduation to watch these young people yesterday was done with ceremony. It's appropriate. We would feel like something is absolutely missing in marking this point in their lives if... They just walked into an office and said, okay, here's your diploma. Okay, here's your diploma. Here's your diploma. No. We build ceremony around it to highlight the significance of what is there. And ceremony on an even grander scale took place yesterday afternoon in London when uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were wed 
incredible ceremony and fanfare and bugles and all that stuff because you're calling attention to something and saying this is significant. And so they understand this is significant, that we are laying the foundation so that we can build the house of God. And they shouted with a great shout, verse 11 says. And then we come to verse 12, which is the verse we're keying in on this morning as our memory verse. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, that's 70 years prior, people. That's what they were yanked away from when they were young boys wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of the joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. Do you see the generational distinction in this verse? Those old men looked at what they saw, and they wept. Now Haggai tells us why they wept. They wept because this foundation, they could see, it was not what the old temple was like. It was not like they remembered it. And he said, does this seem as a small thing, as insignificant in your eyes? He was speaking encouragement to them. But he was identifying to us why. They wept. So you have two groups. Do you get this? There's two groups. You've got the older, the older men weeping with what they see. You've got the younger generation shouting for joy with what they see. And with that understanding, I'd like us to flesh out a couple of thoughts if we could. And I think they are extremely significant to who we are. And what takes place right here. First of all, and this is stuff you've already concluded. It's not like it's going to change your life. Our experiences inform our perspectives. It's exactly what's happening here. They're looking at the exact same foundation. And they are seeing it differently. Why? Because of their experience. Because what has this older generation experienced? They remember as young boys... As younger men, they remember being able to come into Jerusalem and see the temple in all its glory with all of its gold and all of its magnificence. That's their heritage. And now for 70 years they've been in a foreign land and they're brought back and they can see that what's being started. So I think not only for the smallness or the the comparativeness, they're going, oh, you know, I think there's also a, a sincere weeping for what they lost as a nation because they refused to follow God. And I think that's tied into that. But it was a great lamenting that took place. But that was their experience. The younger generation, this is all they know. Right? What their life has been entirely, they have been born in captivity. They have been raised as slaves. They have been raised and only heard of a country that they came from. That they were carried away by these foreign invaders who came in and literally carted them off out of Jerusalem. And now they are back. 
And they see a foundation laid that's going to become their temple. And it's going to replicate only what they have heard of. And they're no longer enslaved. And they're thrilled for this new identity, this new thing. In reading about the generation that is just graduating, this Gen Z, and those who are younger, one of the things I'd never thought of, they don't remember 9-11. We not only remember it, we remember how we felt. We can still remember sitting in front of our TVs and watching buildings go down, people jumping out of nearly 100-story buildings rather than burn. We remember the carnage. We remember the national weeping that took place. We remember how it's changed our lives. I mean, I took the, had the privilege of taking these 12th graders on their 12th grade trip a week ago. Loved it. Had just a great time with them. Took them to Bemidji. Years ago, I was driving the 12th grade trip also. We used to go up to Canada. Every year, I went to Canada. Went up to Winnipeg. Every year. I don't know how many years. What changed? 9-11 changed. You don't go across the borders easily anymore. We remember what it was, don't we? These kids have only known you need a passport to get across the border into Canada. So our experiences inform our perspectives. First thought. Second thought. Differing perspectives may both be correct. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Differing perspectives may both be correct. It was smaller than the first foundation. It did appear less significant. But it was also the result of God restoring His people to their land. Both are true. And so we don't need to, in that context, we don't need to try and argue with each other, try and force one another to see it a different way. We can just listen and bear regard for what another generation sees and how they interpret things. Because they may very well be correct in their viewpoint. Third thing, God will make sense of it all if we let him. See, that's what how Haggai is going to encourage these people. He's going to say to them, yes, it seems small, but know this, God is still at work. And God himself is doing something. And as we wrestle through and try and understand, okay, how, do, how does this multi-generational thing called the church exist? What we need to understand is God is going to make sense to each generation and through each generation and from each generation about the work that He is doing if we will let Him because He is still redeeming people to Himself. The work of the kingdom has not stopped. The work of the kingdom will not die out with my generation because we handled it so incredibly well that obviously it's going to fall apart once we're gone. No. God is going to raise up some Ellerts and some Zachs and people out of their generation. Anthony, Kira, Kaylee, Kiana. 
who are the others? That, am I missing someone? It seems like there's one more, I, but forgive me. But these young people that went and visited at their graduation yesterday, out of that generation, God's going to raise people up who are going to understand what He is doing, and they are going to take it forth. They're going to move ahead with it. And it isn't about them doing it the way that we do it. Because God is still at work. So let's draw some conclusions from these observations, if we could. As we've just said, God's redemptive work is continuing. It will move on through. God's redemptive work is still an expression of His love. For God so loved the world... It is still a loving Father calling out to mankind in darkness and saying, Come to me. In my love I have provided a means for the problem of your sin because that's the problem. And I can bring healing and wholeness into your life if you will come to me. God's redemptive work is still the only hope for wholeness in, through, and among mankind. I, I, I hear this discussion, and, and it's probably a discussion I guess needs to be had. But this whole thing that if we just limit the number of guns, everything will be good. Are we crazy? Don't ever forget that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, the reason God cleansed the earth in Noah's time was because of violence. And they hadn't even invented gunpowder yet. That's not going to solve anything. The solution is a transformed heart because of the gospel that changes who men and women are into Christ-likeness. That's the solution. It's also a thing our world is kind of running away from. And saying, well, we're past that. Remember, these kids are being raised in a post-Christian world. But it's still the only hope, God's redemptive work for wholeness in mankind. Here's another observation for us to make. We may represent here two or three or even four generations right here this morning. But we are only one church. Ever think about that? We're only one church. This, this is one way we might consider thinking about it. I've got this little thing here. That it's just a bolt is all it is. Okay, I got this bolt. I got this bolt. And I'd like you to think of these little things I have in my hand as their subsequent generations, if you would. So the bolt is God's kingdom work, which does not stop. It just keeps moving through time. You can envision it's much bigger. Okay? And there's Arnold Shervin's generation. Okay? You guys have no idea what a blessing this man is to us in the man cave. Ninety years old, can barely raise his arm to shake the hands of the young men who are there, and he is there every time we have the man cave. Cruiser's generation. Okay. The next one has to go on this way. Gospel work still goes through there that way, right? And now we're looking at, we'll say, 
rent in Amy's generation. And these are the kids graduating today. I don't care how many generations you put on here, friends. What's the linking factor to all of it? It goes through all of it, generation to generation to generation to generation. It's God's kingdom work. His redemptive work is going through. And what happens when we grasp that? It's one thing, isn't it? All those generations, one church, that's not falling apart because it's linked together in the gospel, in God's redemptive work. Now, I'll throw out one last quote from these notes. Speaking about Gen Z, but it's, I've heard it of generations a little bit older than them. They're not going to be the church of tomorrow if we don't let them be the church of today. We have got to recognize their place in the body of Christ. We have got to recognize the significance that they bring. So after going through this, this went through the entire weekend of this, um, of this conference, this one seminar is what stuck with me. And honestly, here's what, here's what struck me as I'm driving home. It's almost like I can see this flashing right here. It's a name. It's a name flashing right here. It's Katja. Her name is flashing in front of me. The whole time I'm driving home. Why? We need to grasp the significance. Because she's just older. She's the, one, the group just in front of this Gen Z, right? She's just in front of them. We need to grasp the significance If we want Gen Z to follow us, we need to grasp the significance of the generation before them who understand them far more than I'm going to understand them. Because at least Katya and her generation got some of the stuff. So how significant do those 20 to 35-year-olds become to us in terms of, hey, we're talking about, we want these young kids who just graduated and these younger ones. We have an entire ministry that we build for them so they will follow in kingdom service. How are they going to follow? Who's going to invest this in them? Who's going to help them understand it better than the generation right before them? Do you understand the value that we must place on that generation? Am I making sense? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? So I was so struck by this. I asked for a chance to sit and visit with you, didn't I, Katya? I did. I had, to, I had to go talk to Katya after this because she was so much on my mind. And you see, there's all sorts of different ways of doing ministry out there, people. And I'm not saying we need to change a whole lot of things. But one thing I'm saying we need to do. See, because if, if we don't give them a voice, if we don't respect that they have something to say, and they will help us understand what's coming down the pike and how the world has changed and, and that we're... Where did I put that? Okay. I uh, threw it. That we're way over here now, people, and this is what's coming. These generations here are significant, but we better be listening to these generations here and I think Katja asked her, I said, Katja, we need you, and we need those of your age. We need them to come and speak, not only for their generation, because if they don't, if we don't listen to them, 
If we don't give them a place of involvement, if we don't engage them, if we just like, ah, they're young, what do they know? Because we have all the answers. Who is ever going to help us understand that generation and help the next generation come along? We're going to have this big, gaping hole generationally. And we're going to wind up right back where we were 25, 30 years ago when your generation, Bob and Carol and Larry, Ruth, your generation prayed for young families because you could see something happening. You saw that gaping hole coming. You said, wait a second. Wait a second. If we don't get some younger families in here, Lord, we're done as a church. And God answered that prayer. And a flood of a younger generation came and we've been blessed by that. We need to be aware. That was a long time ago. And there is a new generation coming. And friends, we, so I'm making an appeal. My generation, we need to respect and listen to and hear the needs of this generation coming. And this generation, whether it's yours, Ellard, or yours, or even a little older, you're not all in, in, in highly engaged leadership positions, you need to respect that we still know something. That's the quiz was about. See, we have our own experiences. We do have some wisdom. The thing that I, I, I was very much aware in starting out here, uh, well, nearly 24 years ago now, was the wisdom that the generation before me brought to ministry in our area and how we needed to listen to them. But you see, we're blessed with a generation before us that said, we know it has to change. Do you understand how rich that is? We know it has to change, and they blessed the change, but they helped us make the changes and measure it and make it work. And I pray that my generation now has that kind of wisdom. And we start listening. We perk up our ears and give credence to that next generation coming because they've got to reach the next generation. Is that making some sense? Summary thoughts. Every generation is important because God's kingdom work is moving through every single one. Every generation is to be respected and treated with dignity and respect. Every generation is to be heard. Because we need people from every generation to speak for their generation so we can continue to remain relevant and significant and move forward. Does that make some sense, friends? See, way back in Ezra's time, there were two different generations. One wept at what they saw, the other celebrated. Who was right? They were both right. They were living out their own experiences. What held them together? God's redemptive work. And that's what we're about here. We may be many generations, but we are one church. And we want to embrace that. And here's how we'll do that this morning. We want to get a start on that, don't we? We want a good start. Katja, are you with me? You want a good start on that this morning? Okay, Katja, I know I'll count on Katja. She's awesome. All right. It's Remind Me Again Sunday. Thought we forgot. We did not forget. So here's what we're doing today. 
with intentionality. Today, we're going to make sure we, before we leave here, our assignment is to greet two people who we don't know that are clearly from another generation. Okay? The significant enough age difference, they're from another generation. They're either old enough to be our parents or our grandparents. Don't any of you come up to me and say, hey, you're old enough to be my great-great-grandfather. Can I greet you? Or they're young enough to be our children or our grandchildren. And it'll be even better if we have to learn a name in the process. Because we're many generations, but only one church. Father, thank you. Thank you that your work continues generation upon generation, year after year. That you're moving it towards a magnificent consummation when Christ will return as King of kings and Lord of lords. But presently, Lord, you're still building your church. And we need to understand how each member contributes something of significance to those around them. So, Father, I pray that you will start a fresh work in our midst today, that we're careful about how we view another generation, that we speak with respect whether they're older or younger, that we understand that they're real flesh and blood people, and that we will learn to love one another for the sake of the work you're doing through all of us, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.